Welcome to Global IQ with The Economist. I'm Jim Falk, President of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, and today our conversation is with Andreas Kluth, The Economist U.S. West Coast Correspondent. He is the author of California, The Perils of Extreme Democracy, this week's special report. As you submit questions for Andreas throughout the broadcast via the chat feature of the online forum, we ask that you include your name and location so we know from where you're listening. I'd like to offer a special greetings to World Affairs Council members, economist subscribers, and clients of our sponsors, Texas Capital Bank, a Texas-based bank for businesses that think and act globally, and Jones Day, one firm worldwide. If this is your first time tuning in, we encourage you to listen to Global IQ AudioCast archives. They're available on both iTunes and the Council's website, dfwworld.org forward slash Global IQ. During the program, you will have the chance to win prizes courtesy of The Economist by being the first to correctly answer one of our three challenge questions via the online chat. So stay tuned for your opportunity to win uh, subscriptions to The Economist. Andreas has been writing for The Economist since 1997. He is currently the U.S. West Coast correspondent covering politics, society, and economy in California, as well as other Western states. Before this, he covered technology from Silicon Valley, Asian business from Hong Kong, and finance from London. He's the author of over 700 articles for The Economist. He also has a book that will be coming out, and I'll let him tell you when it's coming out and what it's about, but I know it's a book that we're going to enjoy reading. Welcome. I'm glad you're with us today. Oh, thank you, Jim. Thanks for having me. Um, I had the privilege of, of reading your report a few days early, and uh, it certainly seems to be the case that unintended consequences are often the result of, of best intentions, and, and this seems to be especially true with California. Um, you know, when you look at the budget deficit now of uh, approximately $25 billion, uh, $25 billion it seems that the, the recession certainly played a role. But uh, as you point out, the origins of California's problems are, are deeply rooted and can be traced back to decisions made at least 30 years ago, if not even farther back. Um, tell us what, what led you to write this special report, and especially at, at this time. I've been, um, Jim, I've been pondering the, uh, the, the uh, dysfunction of California for a few years now. Uh, as far as that dysfunction goes, there seems to be a consensus on that. What there's not a consensus about is what the causes are. And that actually predates the, the Great Recession. And obviously, when the Great Recession then hit, it made everything much, much worse, you know, in, in, in many countries, in all states, and also in California. But, um, it, what I, what I tried to do in this report is certainly to acknowledge that the recession is a trigger for a lot of the current problems, but to distinguish between triggers and causes, so, or, or you might say to distinguish between proximate causes and ultimate causes. So certainly some um, uh, places in the world and some states in America, you know, went into and now through the recession in better shape than others, and California is in particularly bad shape, it can't really respond to shocks like this. And that's what interested me, is is, is how did it get into this very vulnerable position? And I actually, I, I sort of quote, I, I like this um, witty quote from Warren Buffett on, on the subject, not on this particular subject, but, you know, you only find out who's swimming naked when the tide goes out. 
and uh, <laughs> the tide goes in and out, and that's the boom-bust economy. So obviously we've had a bust, and that's clear that that, that, that bust itself is a big problem, and, and there'll be another boom. But it did reveal, when the tide went out this time with the Great Recession, that California was, as it were, naked. And, and I was interested in how did it get so naked when everybody was watching? You know, it's not exactly an obscure place. A lot of people are paying attention, but it sort of gradually became naked. And, and that's why I thought, well, let's, let's take this time, you know, in The Economist, in the weekly issues, I've been chronicling the various budget crises and the elections. But, but how did we get into this fundamentally dysfunctional state? Because that cannot have happened over just, you know, since 2008. So, so that's what I went in search of. And then that led me down, you know, interesting, uh, you know, conclusions. Right. And, you know, I guess there's two ways to look at this, or at least two ways. One is focusing on the politics and also on the finance and business. Maybe you could help us uh, understand more exactly how dire the situation is in California um, from a business and economic perspective. So just the the, the financials, um it's interesting when we try to summarize this in a chart, not just in my special report, but in, in others as well. It's quite hard because of the, the requirement of all the states except Vermont to have a balanced budget. You cannot show a cumulative um, deficit as you could with uh, the federal government because there is at least on paper a balancing every year, but even if it's mainly uh, cooking the books. But um, California has uh, these uh, repeated and I would say chronic budget crises, crises of two sorts. One, it has uh, now predating the, the recession been falling short at the beginning of every budget cycle. So there's a structural imbalance that it keeps running into every time. And the uh, nonpartisan analyst for the legislature in California thinks that that is about 20 billion a year, which is a lot of states have entire, you know, have budgets that are, their entire budget is 20 billion, but California has a, has a, a structural, meaning an underlying deficit that is of, of about 20 billion a year, and that'll persist for several years. And about how long have they had that? Sorry? I was saying, about how long have they had that structural deficit? That is actually now a forecast for the next several years. Okay. But, um, but, what what that means if, if if you look backwards um it's harder because then you have the actual deficit that, that at the beginning of each cycle that is to be plugged and then they usually they have been using that's the other part of the dysfunction uh, gimmicks to to get through that uh, so not necessarily cuts or more taxes but you shift accounts and so forth and California is certainly not the only state that does that but let me just um, look at a little chart here. So if we go back to this entire decade, even uh, sort of the you know the end of the dot com bust, so the you know the, when the tide previously went out and the recovery from that, but there were um, two thousand you know two thousand and two with the beginning of the budget cycle more than ten billion to be cut, two thousand three twenty billion, then the ten billion again and so forth, and now we're at the stage the last three years where we've got more than 20 billion every year that needs to be cut, uh, that needs to be plugged, you know, the hole that needs to be plugged. Um, and different, two different, just, uh, one could go on forever citing various statistics, but, um, one sort of overall summary, um, 
you know, I know Senator Poor's and Moody's have come under all sorts of deserved criticism, but but if you just compare the uh, credit rating of the state in the past generation, so since 1978 or so, which is the, the period I cover really, just that you know the two incarnations of Governor Jerry Brown, but in in his first term, Jerry Brown's first term, California had a triple A rating, and now it has an A minus rating. So and and that A minus rating is the worst. So the largest state, sorry, the most populous state, has the worst credit rating. That shows you, you know, that there are underlying concerns about this that are just more, you know, it is a superlative. It is worse than the other states, even worse, even if other states also have this problem. And they also have an extremely high unemployment rate. Um, is it the highest in the nation? It, no, it, it um, as of the, the numbers that, uh, because of the deadlines made it into this report, certainly it's the second highest. Nevada is the highest, neighboring Nevada, Arizona. The, the so-called, you may have heard the term sand states. Um, I suppose Texas has sand too, but, the, you know, Arizona, Nevada, and California are the three sand states, which along with Florida were hardest hit by the foreclosure crisis and the, the housing bust. Um, uh, in Michigan, which for a while had the highest unemployment, you had the more the car, uh, the, the Rust Belt car industry problems. That is almost a slightly different dynamic. But in Arizona, California, uh, um, Nevada, especially Southern California, you you have this huge hangover. You that, that's where the housing bust was uh, the worst, and so the suffering is great. And um, uh, our unemployment here in California is uh, over twelve percent still. But California, a little bit like Texas, has has been really prone to boom bust cycles. Um, defense, I guess, the dot com, and they really have become somewhat accustomed to this, haven't they? It goes back to the founding of the state, the psychology. It's almost a, there's a, I, I, I cover the West Coast, so I'm sometimes, when I was in Oregon, everyone kept saying to me, it's almost a matter of, of local pride in Oregon to, to mention the Oregon, the, the fork in the Oregon Trail. When they, when the settlers came, they're somewhere in, they went on the Oregon Trail, and in Idaho, they could go straight and go to Oregon and Washington, or go left over the Sierra Nevada to California. And if the gambler types that this is the Oregonian version of the of the psychological profile went to California. So, but you know the the gold rush started the state. Before that, the state was largely empty. There were some, you know, obviously it was Spanish at one point, then Mexican, and there were Native Americans, but there were not many people. And it started with the first boom and bust, the gold rush, and it sort of kept going like that. And the the big ones, uh, sort of in recent memory, were the um, aerospace. Southern California here in Los Angeles, where I am, is, was an aerospace center, defense center, uh, that then collapsed quite spectacularly with the so-called peace dividend of the uh, when the Cold War ended. And it never, at that point, uh, um, employment in Southern California never fully recovered to you know national to the national mean. Um, and then you had the great uh, uh, dot com boom and bust, and then you had the great housing boom and bust again. So yeah, it's a very uh, very extreme cycles here, exaggerated in some aspects. I know Texas has them. I know other places have them, but uh, I think uh, California is among the more extreme 
sort of cyclical economies in that way. You know, you mentioned the original uh, founders and explorers in California. I think our listeners might be surprised to find out about Governor Brown's ancestor, who was one of the first settlers. Tell us a, a bit more was, about uh, August Shuckman. Well, surprised. I like that. I plucked. I, that's how I opened my report. I I plucked that out of his inauguration speech. Inauguration speeches are usually extremely good candidates to omit. They're not. Uh, they don't have you. You know, they're not um, cliffhangers. But I just thought it was interesting. He 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 picked. He found his uh, the journals that his uh, great grandfather, a German immigrant, kept when he came to California for the gold rush, or at least at the gold rush time. Um, and you know how they went through the desert, how the how the oxen, the horses died, how they had to burn the wagons, and just the hardship of of how these immigrants came here. And I thought it was colorful because you know then he his. That German immigrant's uh, grandson was Pat Brown, who's uh, one of the great governors of California, one of the or the the ones that had uh, have a have a legacy today still. And then his great grandson is Jerry Brown. So yeah, it was uh, it's just um, a good way to frame California's history, uh, just the uh, through the Y chromosome of this family. And, and it's ironic, too, that Jerry Brown, when he first served as, as governor in the mid 1970s, he followed an actor. And he's done it again. Well, yeah. I mean, they, this is the sort of when California makes makes uh, people smirk, you know. Yeah, he, Jerry Brown uh, took over from a uh, a well coiffed, you know, actor named Ronald Reagan the first time, and then from a also well coiffed um, actor named Arnold Schwarzenegger this time. So it it would seem, perhaps superficially, that nothing ever changes in California, but that's just superficial. But as Jerry Brown found out, a lot had changed. I want to remind our listeners uh, to uh, send in questions through the online chat forum, and let's do our first challenge question. And this is for a uh, year-long subscription to The Economist. Uh, the question is, how many California school districts contain 20 or fewer students each? Is it A, 3, B, 13, C, 23, or D, 31. Again, how many California school districts contain 20 or fewer students each? Be the first one to answer that question correctly, and you have a free subscription to The Economist. One of the things, too, is um, but before we really get into the discussion of, of California's constitution and, and, and why uh, I think you might say at times or it is ungovernable, Explain to us, because we certainly don't have this in, in all of our states, the, the basic uh, precepts of California democracy, um, or what you call extreme democracy. Uh, how did it develop? And then we'll even go farther and talk more about the different definitions of the ballot sure. initiatives and so forth. California uh, is one of 24 states that have what's called direct democracy. And... America as a whole does not have direct democracy, and um, in, so in California and some of these other 24 states, this direct democracy, which I'm about to tell you what that actually consists of, is in effect a fourth branch of government. And, um, and that's very significant because James Madison and the founders in the Constitution that they uh, agreed in Philadelphia and then debated and ratified um, – Explicitly, this was a big part of the debate between Federalists and Anti-Federalists, is should America at the federal level have 
some direct or what they called pure or participatory democracy, and they decided no, and they decided no for very you know these you know for, with an intellectual with intellectual arguments that went back not just to Montesquieu, John Locke, and the Enlightenment, but to Aristotle and and ancient Athens and so forth. And so there was a ve- they made a very strong case to have three branches. So it was it, it was already an interesting development that California and some other states would have a fourth branch, direct democracy. And what that means is, and by the way, I just looked up Texas. I know you're in Texas, and Texas you you don't really uh, you uh, you've tried apparently to have referendums and initiatives for uh, many times, but then you don't quite, and you only have it in one special circumstance uh, when the legislature puts a referendum on a constitutional amendment for you, which is very interesting to me. So Texas, I'm not sure if, if we can count Texas as one of the states that have direct democracy, but what that means um, is three things, really, uh, a, a referendum, and really when we speak of direct democracy, we mean the process of even putting a referendum on a ballot. So it's not so much that a legislature lets the people vote on an act of the legislature up and down, yes or no, do you accept it? That would be a referendum. But if the people themselves, if voters can petition to put a referendum on the ballot, then that would count. So the referendum would be the first part. The recall would be the second tool of the three. And the recall is when, again, voters initiate a process where uh, uh, a, um, a an elected official is you know fired in midterm so before the next election that would be a recall and then the third and this is the most important um, of the three elements is the initiative process where citizens uh, collect signatures to put on a ballot, a law, and that can be, uh, in some states, some states only a statute, in some states only a constitutional amendment, in some states both, in California it is both. So voters collect signatures to, to then put on a ballot and vote into law their own rules. And this is the part of direct democracy that has boomed in the last three decades. Uh, not just in California, but but largely in California. And this is so. Essentially, you have a huge and growing body, an accumulation of citizen-made legislation. And this is really the key. There's, um, uh, you know, I'll stop there. But but this mm-hmm. is this is essentially a, 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 this is the most difficult thing for people from other countries or some other states to understand about uh, states like Oregon and California and Colorado, but especially California, is how big uh, a piece of of this complex puzzle of governance this body of existing initiatives plays, because the legislature never put, you know, enacted those laws. It was the citizens. And only in California can the legislature never... The legislature is not allowed to amend, to change, to appeal these laws. So if the citizens 30 years ago, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, whatever was happening at that time, the, you know, the, the flavor of the month, voted into law something, that is still on the books, and there's now hundreds of these that have just in the last three decades. And, and that fourth branch of government has become um, so 
disproportionate, shall we say, compared to right. the other three branches. Now, are most of these in the tend to be in the western states? And if so, why did that happen in, in that manner? And I know in your special report you wrote that the Southern Pacific Railroad was uh, one of the key reasons that contributed to direct democracy coming to California the way it way it did. Yes. So the the I mean the the West in the 19th century. There was a progressive movement that, that um, your listeners will know, remember, in all over America. And so there was a movement for women's suffrage, for a general expansion of democracy. In the Western states, they, they were at this time frontier states, and we, we have to remember that um, Nevada, Arizona, California were largely empty. Um, maybe you know, just as this uh, this ancestor of Jerry Brown in his journal described, who we talked about a minute ago, they they came through deserts. There were not many people, so it was a it was a vacuum. And the uh, the um, whereas the eastern states, of course, had already a, quite an extensive history behind them, and 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 uh, mature institutions um, and and cities and urban civilizations. Now, the, this new place was uh, not really connected in any way, so the, what connected it was were, were the various railroads, and the I guess the most important of those was the Central Pacific, which then was renamed the Southern Pacific Railroad, and that became the de facto government. It was like, a, I'm, I'm saying de facto, not de jure, of course, but this uh, new frontier state essentially was run by that railroad. And um, this railroad was obviously very corrupt, so all the, um, you know, legislators, mayors, uh, everyone was in its pocket. There are famous descriptions from, you know, it didn't matter whether you were Democrat or Republican, everyone was really in the pocket of the railroad. And so the progressive movement that was sweeping all of America was um, had this sort of additional dimension in the western states and especially in California, where it said, well, we have to find a way, you know, the, the, the representative democracy is not working here because it's so corrupt because the railroad dominates everything. We need to find a way around this. We need, and this was the metaphor, a safety valve and where, where citizens directly legislate if they think their representatives are corrupt. So this was a very noble and reasonable motivation. And then they, they looked around the world, well, what could we do? And they found Switzerland, and there were some Swiss expatriates and American Californians who visited Switzerland and so forth. And they imported the Swiss system, but they imported it with a few tweaks because, you know, it's um, it's a, a, a democracy, it's like capitalism, it's a, it's a long-running, evolving um, constitution, and um, it, you just import it. You, you're not quite sure if you maybe miss one or two details. So they, they did miss one or two details, and it has become something very different than in Switzerland today. But they essentially, they imported the Swiss system, which also has these three elements, recalls, referendums, and initiatives, to California as a safety valve. And and the, in, and there, many states um, adopted it about a century ago, but California actually did exactly 100 years ago this year uh, in October. And what would work in one of the smallest states in Europe certainly might not be transferable to what has grown into one of the largest states in the United States. And what are you know, some of the key differences? Clearly, uh, California's size and its population has been one of the fastest growing until at least recently. 
Yeah, well, the the interesting thing about size, um, of course, California 100 years ago was also very small, and um, the uh, size of the population, if, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier that the debate, as it were, between direct and representative democracy goes all the way back to ancient Athens and ancient Rome and the and all the thinkers of the Enlightenment, like Montesquieu, who very much influenced Madison and Hamilton, they actually said that, you know, size, if you're even going to talk about direct democracy, it's probably going to be a local thing. What you need is a very small population that is very homogenous and virtuous. And virtuous, they had a different definition than we do. But they had in mind, for instance, ancient Athens was a direct democracy, but all the citizens, only men, not slaves, of course, they physically fit onto one rock in Athens that was their assembly. So the small size was implicit. Uh, now, California was small, it was very spread out, and now it's huge, you know, 37 million, I think, uh, people live in it, and the most diverse state. So, yeah, the, just the size as well would have made you think, well, as a state expands in in this much can direct democracy sort of grow with it. But various other things have become clear beyond even just size and diversity that have really made California, California direct democracy go in a very different direction, in the opposite direction from its Swiss mother. And, um, and that really started only a generation ago because for, for, for most of the past century, it was that safety valve metaphor that they used a hundred years ago that that was in operation. They really thought of it as a safety valve, which means, you know, we only use these initiatives if there is if we really think there is a, there is either corruption in the legislature or there's a, one very pressing need that's not met for something. Then we put something in the ballot, and there were not many ballot measures. And that certainly so the, has not been the case in, in California. In the last, uh, I guess there's been over what a hundred ballot initiatives in the well, last. Well, it all started with 19, in 1978 with something called Prop 13, Proposition 13, that launched not only in California but in all the other states. For instance, I read even in even in Texas, Prop 13 in California uh, sparked an interest to introduce the process. But that that everyone sat up. It was an it was an anti-property tax measure, and it was very famous covers of magazines, everything. People. Yeah, I noticed that last... I was doing some uh, research on this yesterday, and I saw that it was on the cover of Time magazine on, on June 5th, 1978, and, and practically every major uh, magazine and newspaper covered it as uh, the lead story. It was the original tax revolt. Um, uh, some people here have told me that, you know, one reason why the Tea Party movement is not big in California now is because it's really already happened then. But there was a bit of a tax revolt. But... Um, that's what it, you know, what the significance was seen to be at the time. It was very significant. But the other um, significance of it was it was also a direct democracy revolt. It was essentially saying, look, look, we're you, we have this initiative process. If we want a law, we'll put it on and we'll vote for it. Uh, we don't need a legislature. We don't need anyone. There was that kind of res insurrection almost, and that was very um, emotionally appealing, I think, to Californians. And other Westerners, and you know, even even other countries. So Prop 13 became famous, you know, all over the world in, in some circles. And it launched the uh, 
these many, 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 many initiatives. So um, just to give you a sense, we um, in the 1960s, so in the decade, there were nine initiatives qualified for Californian ballots. I'm talking not, not local, just statewide. In the 1970s, and Prop 13 came at the end of that, is 22. But then the decade after, 46. That decade after that, the 1990s, 61. And then this last decade, 74. So, so you see, the, this, it really took off in, in, in 1978 and, 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 uh, became an industry. This is the other important thing. It has been stopped. I want you to hold that thought, if you yeah. will. I just want to re- remind, uh, we've not yet received the correct answer to our uh, challenge question number one uh, to win a year-long subscription to The Economist. So let me try again. How many California school districts contain 20 or fewer students each? I'll narrow it down. We'll throw out A. B, is it 13? C, 23? D, 31? But before we go back to and, and, and discuss a little bit more detail Proposition 13, because I really do think it, it's key to what's happening now, one of our listeners, Frank from Dallas, asked this, Texas has been the beneficiary of many displaced California companies that have moved uh, to Texas and elsewhere, Fleur being the most recent. Have any large corporations, U.S. or foreign, chosen to move to California in recent years, or is California considered today to be a state that burdens business with too many taxes? Oh, this is a great question. <laughs> it's also an evergreen question, by which I mean... Um, it, uh, so there's a there's a there's a uh, a, a storyline that's taken hold, and that is very attractive. That um, states like Texas and Nevada next door poach. For instance, Nevada has even advertising campaigns on Californian television. Uh, you know, just asking mainly smaller companies to pack up and leave and go to Nevada, where there's no income tax uh, as in Texas and no, no business corporate tax and so forth. Now there, and then various sort of boffins, you know, researchers have started looking into this. And as usual, the, it, it's more complicated. You try to figure out the net flows, and do you, you know, small businesses, large businesses, and, and and so forth. And there does not seem to be an exodus from California, like a large scale exodus from California to other states. So that has been exaggerated. Um, how exaggerated does not mean it doesn't exist. It also doesn't mean it, it, it could not start. Um, but apparently from the, um, um, there's something called, if, if you want to Google it, um, the, 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 the listener from Dallas said, the Center for the Continuing Study of the uh, California Economy. If you want to Google that, that is a, uh, one outfit uh, where the researcher has looked at this question and, and essentially concluded that. But um, lar- you asked about large um, companies coming to California, and as soon as you ask that, the the um, it, it, it gets more complex or and, and simultaneously sim- similar because, of course, large companies have many reasons to go somewhere. They might, for instance, Intel has factories in Arizona. It has factories. I, I used to be in Asia. You know, I visited Intel factories there. I think it was Malaysia. Um, sometimes you go somewhere where there's no uh, easy regulations, low taxes, but other times you need to be in a talent cluster or, you know, where there's industry expertise or where the 
the chief executive and and uh, the the board uh, want to you know uh, um, where their wives want to live maybe or where their children should go to school. So you there's many reasons to choose headquarters as opposed to factories. And I'm just telling you. So so yes, of course we have huge world class companies that would not never leave California. Apple, Google, Facebook, and so forth. Right? They need to be in Silicon Valley. A lot of the media firms need to be near this sort of "quote unquote" Hollywood, um, and but then you you have um, you know I'm, I'm thinking more broadly like why are so many world class companies in Seattle? You know I've, I always uh, talk about that when I'm up there, and uh, you know they don't have um, income tax; so they only have a sales tax. So the the, the executives like that, but they have these uh, this stunning nature and there's quality of life reasons largely. Um, so uh so there are definitely um i think most depending on the industry most world many world class companies think they need a large presence in California and they won't give that up um necessarily because uh, of of some red tape also i suspect because of the drop in real estate prices it can be even uh, perhaps more challenging to to move to relocate your company to another state to ask people to move yes absolutely um Let's go back to Proposition 13 because so much of what's happening now is is there. Now, I would note that Alan Greenspan at the time even got into the debate. He said, I'm uncomfortable because local governments will be more dependent on state and federal government. Still, he said, if I had to choose between nothing at all or Proposition 13 and a weakening of local government, he, I, would, I, I must say that I would prefer Proposition 13. That was Alan Greenspan. Um, when I was reading about this, I saw that real estate taxes were increasing at a, I mean, an astronomical amount. In some cases, uh, over a thousand percent. What what really happened um, with Proposition 13? Property taxes were reduced, and it, what it, it shifted um, a lot of the funds from the state government to to local. Or to tell us more about that, please. Yes. Um, <laughs> what you you've already just outlined um, in your question. The main um, problem with a direct or citizen-made legislation in general, which is that legislation is complex. That's why Madison and Hamilton wanted uh, representatives to, 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 to pass legislation so that they could deliberate, so that they could be cautious, so that they could look into as much as possible, never totally you know, easy, into unintended consequences. And... Um, Prop 13 is, in a sense, a case study in unintended consequences because certainly the um, the uh, original motivation is entirely, uh, you know, noble and understandable, and I think all of us would have uh, at the time agreed because there because property prices were booming in in California, and every loca- every municipal government set its own property tax rate, so you had uh, uh, you know different rates everywhere. Um, and in, for a lot of people, taxes, uh, property taxes were going up. And then there were stories um, about an old lady, let's say, that had been living in her house for decades, and her, the value of it goes up, and now a property tax bill goes up, and she has to move out. And so there was enormous anger, and we would have all been angry. And uh, it, and the uh, California decided that the legislature wasn't doing enough about this, so. From their point of view, this was really the southern, the new version of the Southern Pacific Railroad. You know, back then you had the railroad that that you had to address, attack with the initiative process. 
Now it was property taxes, so they put Prop 13 on the ballot and cut um, the property tax rate to a uniform lower rate in the whole state, and they capped the rise in assessed values. Now, the, and that led to property tax revenues fell by more than half in the in immediately after Prop 13. So it met, it did meet its intended consequence. That's what they wanted. However, this is where it gets complicated, and in, in every law this is the case, when you just look deeply enough. Um, there were some other details of Prop 13 that are actually necessary when you do this sort of thing that led, uh, let, let, me, let me tell you what it is, two things. There's one, of course, if you're going to, um, you know, cut by more than half a particular tax, um, the the sponsors, the authors of Prop 13 said, well, then we have to make sure that the legislature doesn't just raise some other tax. So it, Prop 13 also increased from a simple majority to a two-thirds majority the uh, threshold needed in both houses of the legislature to to raise any tax so that the, no other tax would raise, would be raised as a result. Um, and, and is that still the case? That is still in place. Okay. That is, and, and, and other states have it too, and since then, where Prop 13 was the model. However, in California, we, there was, which is now no longer the case as of this year, also a two-thirds vote requirement to pass any budget. So California was, for all 30 years, the only state that had needed two-thirds majorities to raise revenues or to pass the budget. So this was made made the running of the state very difficult. But there was um, another detail. Is so if you Prop 13 reduced by more than half the prop uh, the pro, you know property tax intake. That that meant that local governments lost a lot of their revenues, and local governments, you know, counties did various things, but in particular they ran the schools, the school districts. So there was a crisis for schools, and the state stepped in. And this is what what your you know Alan Greenspan was worried about in the quote that you read, and this is what happened. Um, it, and the state stepped in, so now you know the state started finance, started passing money to the counties to make up the the loss in property tax revenue. That was initially supposed to be right after Prop 13 a one-time thing, but actually it almost immediately became a permanent financing mechanism, and that's what makes California most unusual among all the states today. Is it has very centralized finances. Everything goes through Sacramento. And um, this, of course, is a completely unintended consequence and creates lots of problems. And in particular, it's ironic because Prop 13, if, you know, I called it the first sort of incarnation of a Tea Party rebel, uh, you know, Tea Party movement. In a way, it was. They were small government um people and they believed in small government and they also believed in decentralized government. Those go together in American conservatism. And Prop thirteen did the opposite. It, they it got meant, exactly the opposite, yeah. Yes. And it it and Governor Brown now, once he called it realignment, wants to to reverse that. It's very difficult once this is embedded with subsequent valid measures and legislation. Everything is now built on this where all the money 
flows in very complex ways from you know res- residents through the various taxes um not just income but sales and property and so forth up through Sacramento and then down again so you have this octopus structure and that is not ideal it's not how you want to run a state and it's it's just a an example for you know everything that came subsequently has to account for that it's an example for unintended consequences that in a direct democracy are are much harder to address you know that uh, if if it if it had been an act of the legislature, the legislature could have easily revisited that very quickly when this became clear. Mm-hmm. But, you know, to, voters didn't understand this aspect of Prop 13 then. Most of them are completely unaware of it now, and it's just very hard to fix this. And I want to talk about term limits, too, because that was another example of perhaps an unintended consequence. But before we do that, I want to thank and uh, congratulate Albert Plunkett. Albert is the winner of Challenge Question 1, um, which is how many California school districts contain 20 or fewer students each, and the correct answer was was, was 23. Um, also, we have a, a question back, again, I think the more uh, corporate relocations from Tim. He says, you spoke earlier of the reasons for which settlers diverted towards California, you also spoke of the rationale for the location of major corporations locating there. At some point, might the characteristics that attracted the settlers and corporations evaporate, affecting the exit of both from the state? I think we've touched on that, but you might elaborate just a bit more. Might that at some point happen? That's the question. I think, think, sure. I mean, certainly uh, a lot of people that I talked to uh, threatened this, threatened this relocation. Um, and I don't, I never know, you know, how much of that is. A lot of people who live in California still really like living here. You know, there are reasons, and I don't even want to get into the weather. That's just too, too cliche. But yeah, don't rub it in. Like being here, they don't want to leave. You know, but right. but, um, but it is becoming a very complicated state. Um, certainly, many um, uh, uh, middle class, uh, let's say, you know. People with the American dream are leaving, uh, they're fleeing uh, property prices, which are still high, even after, you know, they're, they've gone elsewhere. They, a lot of Californian, uh, Californians have gone to Arizona, to Nevada, to other places for that reason. And some companies, should, too, I mean, it depends on, on, it actually depends what, what industry you're in. But I, I talked to someone yesterday, I visited um, a uh, sort of a, a large manufacturing uh, meat processing plant, and they're, they're thinking, well, I can't handle it anymore. I might go to the Midwest. That's where all the other people in our industry is. So you're, if you're asking, might it happen? Yes, it might happen. If that were to happen, that would be a, a major wake-up call. Of course, we've already had plenty of wake-up calls. So um, you see, the, the other thing is um, questions like that, or there are people, I, I think uh, Jim is, is, is probably going to ask me about this later, but there, the, there is a sense of urgency. So it, nobody here is pretending that this is not a problem. So there are reform efforts under the way. So um, I, I think the, the, the things that would uh, drive companies out can actually be fixed. So it's a, it's a sense of race against the time. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't think we'll get to the, you know, where silicon packs up and moves. I don't think we'll see that anytime soon. Well, we're going to talk more about some of the potential reforms that might make a difference, but let's go back to term limits because, uh, you know, we still hear even in this state and elsewhere that there should be more term limits and California perhaps found that it doesn't always work as you intended. Well, term limits, uh, 
California, again, led the way. And first of all, just to, for context, term limits is an interesting example um, for uh, something else. For the, the initiative process um, was by this time about, uh, this is around 1990, uh, give or take. Um, and uh, the, what, when, the, the, when the initiative process with all those ballot measures really took off, that means you had more citizen-made legislation that constrained, in a strange way, the legislature. So every every initiative costs money, so the legislature has lost some power in allocating that because citizens have done it. So the, the legislature, which used to be in California, you know, one of the best legislatures in the world, it was actually studied because it was considered to be so professional and collegial, declined exactly at the same time as the initiative process took off in the 80s and 90s. And it and there was a strange, this is chicken and egg, no one knows which caused which, but Californians, uh, one reason they liked the, like the initiative process is that they really think very little indeed of their legislature. So they, in, in the polls, they, they, and, and, what we have there is a, a sort of um, um, what's the word of reflexive um, uh, thing where the um, voters pass initiatives that actually you know put the legislature in a straitjacket. The legislature then doesn't do well, and that makes the voters angry. And so the voters then put more things on the initiative process to punish the legislature. That that makes the legislature even more ineffective. Uh, which makes the voters even angrier, and so forth. You get the point. Yeah. Now, yeah, some of them are the, the, the great example for that because the voters uh, sort of made up their mind in around 1990 that that the big problem was these people were too entrenched, and there were there were indeed some, um, you know, Willie Brown and some some people who were who seemed to be there forever, and uh, <laughs> so they decided that was corrupt. We have to limit them. And then, and so they have some very strict term limits in place, which other states copied. However, what we've, and I think this is what you were saying is, did we again have unintended consequences? And the answer is yes, because out, you know, essentially the voters in that way threw out all the accumulated expertise in the legislature. You now have essentially novices, greenhorns, showing up every few years and um, already in debt to their campaign donors. They have a few years in one or the other chamber. Um, they have no incentive to compromise with anyone because they know they're not going to be there long. They have to repay their campaign donors right away with, with uh, you know, uh, sort of hewing to the party line on their on, on legislation. And then they start preparing their next career move again. So you, you have... Um, You've undermined the old, you know, pre-1970s um, traditions in the Sacramento capital of um, analysis, of deliberation, of compromise. Um, you know, if you if you expect to be in an institution for a long time, you might compromise with uh, your, the opposing party on X because you know. You know, you're going to need them maybe for your own bill called Y and so forth. And, and there was a different culture. So now it is a very sort of in-out. Of course, the lobbyists that are in Sacramento, they're there permanently. So they're very, um, you know... Well, let me ask you this. 
Idaho repealed its term limit. Um, is there any effort in California to do this? And it doesn't seem no, like it would pass. But well, um, Idaho. First of all, Idaho is was the legislature in Idaho was able to repeal its term limit laws, which was put on the books by initiative. Because many states, in, you know, or because all states and all countries actually allow legislatures to amend uh, citizen-made legislation if unintended consequences become clear, with one exception, and that's California. So, you, you again, you see it's sort of a cautionary tale in what not to do. It, the legislature has not been allowed to change the term limits law in California because it's just not allowed to amend any initiative. So the only way to change it here, in this state, California, would be to put on another initiative. That is uh, sort of in the works, and it might happen next year. Uh, in other words, there might be an initiative to change term limits next year, but uh, the word there is to change, not to get rid of... Not to, to repeal. To, to repeal or to make easier, it's essentially, um, it, it, it's a slight moderation that frankly, I, I don't think will, will change much. It's more about the, you know, collective number, uh, like can you do it both in, in one house consecutively? Because right now what they do is they fill up their term limits in the assembly and then they go to the state senate and it's, it's a bit of a, you know, sham the whole thing. But so it, it, it the, the the initiative that I see on the ballot right now would not change this in a major way as they did in Idaho. We have about ten minutes left, and I want to be sure too that we have time to talk about your your book. But before we move to the next question, I'd like to do another challenge question for a year long subscription to the Economist. In California in 2008, the richest five percent of the population accounted for what percent of income tax revenues? 12%, which is A, B, 22%, C, 43%, or D, 64%. It, it seems like one of the major problems that you outlined is that 90% of the state's budget is already allocated um, before the state assembly even begins to, to meet and negotiate. So, you know, they're, they're held accountable, but they really don't have a, a whole lot of leeway. That's right. The 90% number is what uh, the former Speaker of the Assembly told me. Nobody, I've, told, I've asked many people, I think the correct thing is to say that somewhere between 70 and 90%. Okay. Um, it doesn't really matter, but, but the point, the, the main point is, and this is, I think, another lesson to other states uh, considering increasing this, is that it's called ballot box budgeting. Is um, A lot of laws sound really good and where you would say like how could I possibly how could anybody not vote for this so if there's an awful crime and someone says well sex offenders should be be in prison for even longer or something like this or a, a new hospital you know there's things that we can all agree are good ideas but if you put them on a ballot in, in isolation again in a Madisonian Republic representatives are supposed to deliberate about trade-offs among different Priorities, you know, in a, in a, in a world of scarcity. If you just put ballot measure after ballot measure on, the voters in effect allocate the budget. So any train system or any uh, you know environmental legislation, um, any crime legislation that leads to more prisoners, anything like that costs money. Uh, at the same time, we've talked about Prop 13 as one example of everyone hates paying taxes. You know. Uh, so if you let voters just vote, p 
piecemeal without uh, you know taking into account the overall governance structure. They are, as in California, they will likely vote to you know their taxes down and then lots and lots of other things that cost money up, and that is ballot box budgeting. And in that way, California, um, the Californian budget is is more than half, in effect, allocated before the two parties even begin negotiating about this particular year's budget. And then they have the two-thirds requirements and, and other things to worry about. But but this is a problem. So reform must somehow address, certainly, this topic of ballot box budgeting. But you can address it as much as you want. It Direct democracy is not good at this. You know, you have to put measures one at a time on a ballot and let voters decide that, and you have to educate them before the election and so forth to to make uh, 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 comprehensive decisions on how sh- what should a state spend its money on, which automatically means where should it not spend money, is very difficult to do with a series of valid measures. Uh, and, and, and one thing our listeners will find when they become readers of your special report is is just really how unaware um, so many California residents are about about their government and how it how it works. I want to congratulate Hugh Smith. He's the winner of Challenge Question Two. The answer is the richest five percent of the California population, 2008, uh, accounted for 64 percent of income tax revenues. Um, <clears throat> We also have a question from Michael Phillip uh, from California. What is the anticipated economic impact on California when the Panama Canal reopens to supercontainer ships? I I don't know, uh, Michael. I think your name was Michael. Um, yes. And, mm-hmm. uh, I know we. Uh, I, I have a colleague who's a decades-long veteran of the shipping industry, and he's looking into that. Um, I, I can, for other listeners, I can outline the, um, the the problem, but I cannot, unfortunately, make a prediction. We we have in California several ports, including right near me the Long Beach and Los Angeles ports, but also Oakland, and then where um, a lot of the containers from Asia show up and then get shipped to the rest of America. And they want to widen the canal in Panama so that the ships can, more ships can go through it and actually float directly to the east coast. And that one would think clearly that that would divert some traffic from our ports here on the west coast. Um, but if you're asking, uh, you know, do I have a, a model um, for for the you know container ton equivalent, or uh, I, I don't. Um, I, I I would imagine. That um, that it, uh, it, it you know that that the ports have more competition, but maybe if um, trade as a whole picks up um, and and other forms of logistics, uh, you know a lot of population centers are here in the West Coast too, so they're they're still going to be served through our ports and then the roads and, and rail. That I, I, I I've, I've not heard mm-hmm. that it's going to be cataclysmic. Yeah, I was looking at today's uh, headlines, and I just put in Google uh, California budget, and I got Cal State students stage sit-in to protest budget cuts, and they're still sitting outside the president's office in Cal Fullerton. Uh, California's budget deadline looming, um, because I gather there's still about $15 billion in red ink, and then also uh, a headline that state's financial crisis could cut funding on uh, some highway uh, construction that had already been pretty much put in put in place, as well as some light rail lines. It it, it still looks like it's a, a situation that is somewhat tenuous. 
Oh my God, tenuous is. Uh, well, well, just um, this gets into the the, the current news of, of this year. Um, the the uh, Jerry Brown's uh, idea was you, ha- you 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 address the budget, you plug the budget hole half 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 with more cuts after several years of cuts and half by extending existing taxes tax raises. And um, he was uh, hoping to use direct democracy with a vote of the people. But to put that measure on the ballot with uh, a bipartisan vote of Republicans and Democrats, and that failed completely. So the tax election, uh, tax extension election, is it seems to be out. So an all-cuts budget, uh, you know, is is a real possibility, or some other effort to again put this on some initiative later this year. And yeah, it's it's a, I I would be very surprised if California had a budget uh, by the deadline. Uh, July 1st. It usually doesn't, you know, it usually has late budgets anyway, but I think this this will be another very uh, awkward um, year where very late into the year we don't really have a budget. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to be following it with interest, and I and certainly encourage everyone to, to read your special report because uh, it, it, it is very detailed and really gives you a, a, both a historical as well as a current context uh, to review and understand what's happening now. Andreas, tell us about your book. I am really excited just by the, by the title of it. Oh, thank you, Jim. Thank you for taking an interest. So it, I just found out that it's going to be published January 5th, so we have some time. It's been a long wait. The book has nothing to do with any of this, what we've been talking about. It's uh, about success and failure. The, the title is Hannibal and Me what history's greatest military strategies can teach us about success and failure. And what it is is essentially um, a story from ancient history of, of the Carthaginian general Hannibal, who uh, you know took his elephants over the Alps and attacked the Romans, and he won every battle, but somehow he lost the war and all of history. And about his Roman enemies, who for, who were in the opposite uh, position. They had disaster after disaster, but somehow they prevailed. And I tell their story, and I mix it in with a little bit my own story and Eleanor Roosevelt, Albert Einstein, Steve Jobs, you know, other people that we're more familiar with, just to um, to tease out the, the the life lessons from you know uh, how uh, success and failure can be imposters how different people react to success and to failure in different ways. Some people recover, some people don't. Some people succeed, but succeed at the wrong thing because they have confused life tactics with life strategy, and so their successes take, you know, propel them toward disaster in that way. And other people do not. And so I tease these lessons out from these um, very interesting lives, mainly that uh, story of the uh, war between Carthage and Rome, but also from uh, our own times, uh, you know, Tiger Woods is in it even, and uh, so well chosen. Hopefully, yeah. uh, have you have you been able to interview some of the uh, contemporary figures? I I tried as much as possible to um, have dead people in the manuscript, if only because uh, <laughs> w- you know with uh, with uh, people from history who are dead, uh, we know how their lives ended. Where I mean. Uh, whereas uh, you know Tiger Woods, whom I've not interviewed, uh, no. But right. uh, the problem is, uh, as you as you might recall, that even since the writing of this, uh, 
his life has taken some unexpected turns, shall we say. So, which, which very much reinforced my, you know, the thesis that success and failure are imposters. But um, I, I well, no one will so easy and so hard for me. So they won't second guess your conclusions if you're only writing about deceased folks. So. Well, I want to thank you so much again for being with us and remind our listeners that they can uh, keep in touch with Andreas by going to his uh, website and, and where he blogs about his book and also about his writings for, for The Economist. That's at andreaskluth.org. Uh, and I signed up this morning and, and, and really look forward to keep keeping in, in, in touch with you. I want to remind our listeners that next October, The Economist will hold its third annual Buttonwood Gathering. This two-day conference brings together thought leaders, practitioners, and provocateurs in international finance. The conference takes place on October 26th and 27th in New York City. For details about it, go to buttonwood.economist.com. Uh, I've seen a preliminary list of speakers and participants. It includes uh, Joseph Ackerman, the chief executive officer of Deutsche Bank. Of course, the editor-in-chief of The Economist, John Mickeltide. Uh, Carmen Reinhardt, who is at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. This really will be a unique meeting in, in, in New York City, so if you're interested, do go to The Economist uh, website at buttonwood.economist.com. And, of course, if by chance, and I hope there are not many of you out there, but if you're not yet a subscriber to The Economist, please go to economist.com to start your subscription today. And visit our website at dfwworld.org forward slash global IQ to sign up for the latest updates and information on our program. I want to remind you, too, that our next Global IQ will be on May 13th at 10 a.m. Central Daylight Time. We will be looking at a half-year recap of the world's economy with the Director of Global Forecasting at the Economist Intelligence Unit, Leo Abrasesi. Global IQ is a presentation of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth and the World Affairs Councils of America. It's an association with The Economist, and today's broadcast was generously supported by Texas Capital Bank and Jones Day. And if you would like to learn more about the World Affairs Council and one near you, please visit worldaffairscouncils.org. And remember, together the Economist and the World Affairs Council put you on top of the world.